0: Witness Docs from Stitcher.
1: Previously on Ernie's Secret. He heard everything. He saw
2: everything. He knew everything. I don't think he viewed himself as an informant. I think he viewed himself as them looking for information. He was paid.
3: He was receiving assignments. He was was directed, and he had this code number. He was extremely important and valuable to the FBI, you know, far and away, their, their most important racial informant.
2: From what we know about the FBI today, we don't have any confidence because we know now that they lie, they make up things, they do things, they create things, they destroy people.
0: Called 338 night, Tuesday, November 22nd. He's in Washington with his son.
1: The diary entries are brief. Retired FBI agent Bill Lawrence had a problem.
0: I tried seven times evening, November 21st, to call 338 at above number.
1: One of his old confidential informants had left a message at the House earlier that day. But now Bill couldn't reach him. This was an informant Bill had worked with for nearly a decade an informant only known in the record books as M.E. 338-R. And Bill needed to talk to 338. He needed to talk to him now.
0: A.M. of November 22nd at 7.30. Try it again. No luck.
1: If he couldn't get 338 on the phone before 10 a.m. the following day, something very bad might happen. M.E. 338-R, of course, was Ernest Withers. And on 10 a.m. November 22, 1978, Ernest was set to testify behind closed doors before several members of a congressional committee. For the nearly 18 years that Ernest had been working with the FBI, only a handful of people knew his secret. But now Congress was investigating the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and others now knew Ernest's name. They were determined to ask him what he'd been doing for the FBI at the time that King was killed those frantic phone calls from Bill Lawrence, he wanted to know what Ernest planned to say. Because what Ernest told that congressional committee could determine whether or not the whole world would learn the secret that these two men had held on to for years. This is Unfinished, Ernie's Secret. I'm Wesley Lowery. By this point, Bill Lawrence had been retired from the FBI for eight years, and he had moved with his wife from Memphis to Spruce Pine, North Carolina.
5: He taught one or two criminal law courses each term at Mayland Technical Community College. He was on the church vestry and taught Sunday school. He'd started working with the Special Olympics kids. He was president of the Kiwanis that year and managed their pecan sales. Retired life was good. It wasn't complicated, and Bill had put the FBI behind him. This is Betty Lawrence, Bill's daughter. And he cooked and baked. This is the main thing. Almost every day, he gave away so many batches of bread, brownies, chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal cookies. But he would give them to people. If they were sick, he'd come by with a loaf of bread. But then one day, in 1978,
1: Bill got a subpoena to testify before a select committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. To understand the origins of that subpoena, we have to go back a few years to a series of extraordinary events and revelations in the early 1970s.
3: What did the president know, and when did he know it? In
1: 1973, the Senate investigation into Watergate revealed an array of dirty tricks and dirty politics by Richard Nixon's White House. This included directing national intelligence agencies like the FBI to carry out domestic security operations to cover up illegal activity.
0: Therefore...
4: I shall resign the presidency, effective at noon tomorrow.
1: Four months after Nixon resigned in August 1974, the New York Times published a front page story claiming that the CIA had been spying on anti-war activists during the Nixon administration. An outraged Senate responded by creating a committee to investigate the FBI, CIA, and other intelligence agencies. The hearing will please come to order. It was known as the Church Committee, named after its chairman, Senator Frank Church of Idaho. Today we are here to
0: review the major findings of our full investigation of FBI domestic intelligence, including the COINTEL program and other programs aimed at domestic targets, FBI surveillance of law-abiding citizens and groups, political abuses of FBI intelligence, and several
1: specific cases of unjustified intelligence operations. The committee had a daunting task, examine decades of alleged abuses in a short amount of time, just 16 months. The FBI was under particular scrutiny for targeting the civil rights movement and for trying to discredit Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At one point, Senator Church read from that letter the FBI sent Dr. King, the one that had hinted at suicide.
0: King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know
1: what it is. The Church Committee released its report in April 1976. Their findings were stunning. Decades of intelligence agencies undermining the constitutional rights of citizens. Massive surveillance, both here and abroad. Watch lists containing more than a million names, including the name of Senator Frank Church. And also among the findings were these. That the CIA withheld information from Congress about the assassination of President Kennedy and that longtime FBI director J. Edgar Hoover had held a deep animus towards Dr. Martin Luther King at the time of his death. As a result, in September 1976, Congress launched yet another investigation, one that would re-examine the deaths of Kennedy and King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations. This was the committee that subpoenaed Bill Lawrence, and this was the committee that brought Bill and Ernest Withers back into
5: each other's lives. In 1972... He started keeping a diary, and I have his diaries for every year until he died in 1990. This is Betty Lawrence again, Bill's daughter. After her
1: mother died in 2009, Betty discovered her father's diaries, notes that he kept in various handmade booklets. Bill would take sheets of eight and a half by 11 old mimeographed reports, he'd tear them in half, and then he'd staple the pages together.
5: He was just writing in his diary every day, and he— Kept them all, and there they are.
1: Betty pulled out the notes from 1978. The stack was nearly four inches thick. Her father wrote in black ink. His handwriting was messy. That year, Bill wrote about a lot of things. About hiking and the community association. But in 1978, Bill also wrote a lot about the committee that was investigating the assassinations of Kennedy and King.
0: FBI forced to cooperate and feels its investigation of the King murder will stand any and all scrutiny. All current and ex-agents released from any signed non-disclosure agreements. FBI asks, however, that agents do not disclose or reveal identities of sources, live or dead. Yesterday, as you no doubt heard in the news, the Assassinations Committee of the House of Representatives began its first formal investigation hearings into the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
1: The Assassinations Committee opened its public hearings in August. On day two, they called a star witness, James Earl Ray. Ray said that he did not kill Dr. King, that his original guilty plea was a fraud, that he'd been set up. Bill listened to the hearings.
0: 9 heard parts of radio broadcast of House Committee interview of James Earl Ray represented by Mark Lane. Real soap opera.
1: Over the next few months, the committee would call lots of witnesses. People who had worked with Dr. King, the younger, more militant Black power activists, and many former FBI agents. And then they called Bill Lawrence.
0: Ten thirty-one seventy-eight, Subpoena. House Committee on Assassinations. Arrived certified mail regarding M.L. King assassination.
1: In his diary, Bill seemed annoyed by the idea that he'd have to speak with Congress at all.
0: Can't understand why my testimony deemed pertinent.
1: Time will tell. But of course Congress wanted to talk to Bill Lawrence. This was the guy who was in charge of the FBI in Memphis at the very time that Dr. King had been killed in Memphis. No one would have known what the FBI was up to in that city at that time better than Bill Lawrence.
5: He was pretty sure that There were going to be people on that committee that really wanted to paint him in a light that he didn't think was accurate, and he wanted to make sure that he did his best job as he could defending the FBI.
1: In his diary, Bill Lawrence was defensive. There are several entries where he criticizes the entire process, where he says that the committee's questions are not designed to ascertain true facts
0: but seemingly designed to prove members' prejudgment of some sort of conspiracy.
1: Maybe he was just grouchy in his old age. Maybe it was because he'd wanted to leave his FBI years behind him. But maybe it was because he was embarrassed. The assassination of Dr. King had happened on his watch. And now a congressional committee was asking questions. It was running down all sorts of leads, investigating all sorts of theories. Including one about what happened at that demonstration in Memphis back in March 1968. The one in support of the striking sanitation workers. The one, led by Dr. King, that had turned violent.
3: Police are now again chasing more Negro youths in an attempt to break up this wild melee disturbance on Main Street.
1: The committee wanted to know if the FBI had incited the violence in order to embarrass King. That would be pretty major, since the failure of that march is what forced Dr. King to return to Memphis, where ultimately he was killed. Bill knew that this is what they wanted to ask him about.
0: Committee is trying to prove or disprove that Memphis Police Department and or FBI used agent provocateurs to create violence in Memphis during King's visits.
1: Shortly after the subpoena arrived, Bill learned something even more troubling. The committee had also asked to talk to one of his informants. They wanted to speak to Ernest. Bill was stunned. How did Congress even know that Ernest existed?
0: Don't know if ECW will have to identify himself as informant. If so, he and family will be endangered and jeopardized. A dangerous situation.
1: As it turns out, the congressional investigators had started focusing in on that small group of paid racial informants who were working in Memphis in 1968. There were only five of them, and the committee asked to see their files. The FBI initially resisted, but ultimately, the Bureau agreed to hand over the files with the names of the informants redacted. In his diary, Bill grew concerned about what could come next.
0: House Assassination Committee staff and U.S. Justice Department have been trying to identify our informants, including ECW.
1: ECW. Ernest Columbus Withers. We don't know exactly how it happened, but congressional investigators figured out Ernest's name. Bill felt betrayed, like the FBI had violated its sacred oath to protect Ernest's identity. According to Bill's diary... Ernest agreed to meet with a few members of the committee behind closed doors. Bill wrote that Ernest called him before the meeting, worried that his role as an informant could become public.
0: This could jeopardize his life and ability to live in MFS and could jeopardize careers of members of his family.
1: The stakes for Bill and Ernest had never been higher. For years, they had done everything possible to keep their relationship secret. Bill Lawrence was devastated. He believed that the government he'd served for decades was now betraying him. This is from Bill's diary.
0: The FBI broke a sacred covenant given to an informant that his identity would not be revealed and that his confidential relationship with the FBI would be protected.
1: And then he warned...
0: Our intelligence is being completely destroyed. For where in the future will the U.S. find people who will ever agree to become sources and informants, well knowing that years later their identities may be revealed by some branch of the federal government?
1: Bill wrote that he and Ernest had been thrown to the wolves, that Ernest was now a sitting duck, that this was all dangerous and inexcusable. According to Bill's diary, Ernest called him after he was done meeting with congressional investigators. He said they asked about his role in the protests that turned violent, and about those wooden sticks, the ones that ended up being used as weapons. And here's where things got messy. And again, keep in mind, these conversations, these details, all this back and forth, it's from Bill Lawrence, from what he wrote in his diary. There's nothing from Ernest about any of this, and the committee's records about his testimony have never been made public. In the diary, Bill wrote that Ernest had told him how he'd driven a friend to buy the wood and rent the saw to make those sticks. But Bill writes that when Ernest spoke to the congressional committee, he denied knowing anything about the sticks. Even more important, Ernest had downplayed his work with the FBI, saying that Bill had never directed him or given him assignments.
0: Said he sold FBI pictures, just as he did, to Jet.
1: Here's what Bill wrote.
0: 338 claims he told them he sold many pictures to FBI, but he was not a member of any group as such, and thus not privy to inside info.
1: In other words, Ernest was telling Congress that the FBI was just a client, that he wasn't a loyal, long-time informant racing back to Bill Lawrence to share the movement's greatest secrets. Here, in front of Congress, again, according to Bill's diary, Ernest had contradicted what Bill had been writing into his official reports, and what Bill was now preparing to testify to himself. Seems that
0: 338 either doesn't recall or won't admit that he furnished FBI and WHL with such in-depth info as it would make him look like a snitch, informant, or traitor to black race, etc. This may end up being my word against 338.
1: This, Bill knew, was dangerous. If Ernest and Bill told different stories, or if Ernest contradicted the official FBI reports, it would raise serious questions. Was someone lying under oath?
0: Will 338 corroborate and verify what I, in 1968, reported him to have said? 338's problem is that he's on the defensive about his 32868 participation in buying and renting SAW to cut the two-by-two poles.
1: We have reason to at least partially believe Bill on this. That's because, in 2003, Ernest gave an interview acknowledging that he and a friend had rented the saw. But what should we make about the rest of it? We know that Ernest was an informant, but almost everything we know about the extent of his work is based on Bill Lawrence's FBI reports. That's always made me a bit uncomfortable. And here, according to Bill's diary, In the only moment we're aware of in which Ernest was ever asked about the veracity of those FBI reports, he said that they were inaccurate. Here's how Bill imagined he'd explain the discrepancies were he ever asked.
0: With regard to 338, my position is and always will be that if info attributable to him is in the files, that is what he told me at the time ten and a half years ago. And if he now denies it, it must be due to a natural faulty memory for recall of minute data after that many years.
1: Will Ernest and Bill team up one more time? That's after the break.
4: Offer subject to change, valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense. So full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best.
1: On Tuesday, November 21st, 1978, Bill Lawrence walked into room 345 of the Cannon House office building on Capitol Hill, just after 9 a.m. He swore to tell the truth. His testimony was public. Members of the House Assassinations Committee asked about those sticks, the placards that ended up being used as weapons. Even though Bill had written in his diary that it was Ernest who had purchased the wood and cut the sticks, he told Congress that the sticks had been furnished by local ministers who organized the strike. Like Ernest, Bill Lawrence was telling a different story to Congress than he had told in private. Soon, Bill was being asked about his work with informants, and about his work with Ernest in particular.
5: You call him, to give him your requirements and
1: then call him. The hearing was broadcast on the radio, and Margaret, Bill's wife, recorded her husband on a cassette player. "We've got a small excerpt of that recording. It's hard to hear, but Bill is asked how often he met with this informant in the days leading up to MLK's assassination. In
5: almost daily contact with the source or maybe sometimes two three times a week least.
1: Probably would have been in almost daily contact with this source," Bill responded. And how did that contact occur? I would
5: call him if I had an occasion to alert him to something. Otherwise, uh, I would hope that he would call me, which he frequently did.
1: I would call him. Otherwise, I would hope that he would call me, which he frequently
5: did. Uh,
1: Sometimes, Bill said, they would meet to personally exchange information. We safe conditions. to personally exchange information, go over uh, descriptions, Any photographs, things of that nature? Go over descriptions, any photographs, things of that nature. And then, according to the transcript, Bill was asked, Mr. Lawrence, is there any doubt in your mind that the information which you attributed to that source in 1968 did in fact come from that source? They never used his name, but reading the testimony, we know that they're talking about Ernest. And we know that they're trying to figure out why the two men's stories don't line up. Could Bill have exaggerated or even made up things that he attributed to Ernest? Bill insisted that he accurately recorded what the source had told him. There is no doubt in my mind, he said. In his closing remarks, Bill Lawrence made one last appeal to the committee, an appeal to protect the identity of his informant.
0: If the identities of these informants, living or dead, are ever revealed to unauthorized sources, their lives will be placed in danger. They are going to be jeopardized. They can be harassed. And the feedback can even affect their families.
1: If this committee made those names public, Bill said they would be putting the entire nation in danger. Once
0: we cease to retain the identities of informants in confidence in this country— Where will we ever, and I repeat that, where will we ever find people who will be informants in our future to our combined
1: peril? Two hours later, Bill Lawrence walked out of the hearing room and headed back to North Carolina. When he got home, there was a message that Ernest had called. This is the night when Bill calls him back seven times but never gets an answer. When Bill finally reached him the next morning, Ernest said that he was headed back to Capitol Hill to testify again behind closed doors. Bill knew that he didn't have much time in his diary, he wrote that he urged Ernest to admit to the investigators that he had been a longtime informant.
0: that he could inadvertently commit perjury by denying that he had ever furnished info which I had attributed to him and had so reported.
1: According to the diary, Bill offered Ernest coaching on what to say. Bill writes that he told Ernest
0: if. His confidential relationship with me had been based on and motivated by his concern for the peaceful and effective preservation of the civil rights movement, a concern aimed at trying to prevent or deter its exploitation and possible counterproductive destruction or diminution of effectiveness, that he should say so. And that if his purpose in cooperating with the FBI was to detect and deter violence, either by furnishing info or by counseling, that he should say so. And if his cooperation was based on patriotism and concerns of civic morality aimed at protecting his family, race, and community from destructive violence and not for mere monetary gain, that he should say so. And that, if in reality... He assumed a posture of financial sacrifice, i.e. taking so much time away from his business, etc., and putting in long hours much at nights and on weekends, that he should say so.
1: This conversation seems on its face to have been pretty inappropriate. It's the morning that Ernest is supposed to testify before Congress about his work with the FBI. His former FBI handler is on the phone with him, urging him to say certain things. Ultimately, the committee found no evidence of an FBI plot to sabotage that Memphis march. In its final report, the committee wrote that there was no basis for a conclusion that the FBI directly, or through its informants, had provoked the violence. They found nothing to support the idea that the FBI intentionally brought about the death of Dr. King. The evidence, wrote the committee, was overwhelming that James Earl Ray was a lone assassin. But perhaps most importantly for our story, the committee never outed Ernest, never making his role as an informant public. We don't know much about what happened between Bill Lawrence and Ernest Withers after that dramatic day in November 1978. The only time Ernest is mentioned afterwards in Lawrence's diary is the following month, on December 18, 1978, when he writes that he got a $68 phone bill, attributable to the phone calls he made related to his appearance before Congress. According to Betty Lawrence, her father and Ernest did
5: communicate for a couple more years. They exchanged Christmas cards long after Daddy retired, so I know that relationship was real.
1: Betty says she has her father's Christmas card list from 1980. Ernest is on it.
5: You know, I knew that he and Daddy were friends. I still feel that way. They liked each other. I mean, you don't send Christmas cards 10 years after you've seen a person if they're not your friend. Life didn't get easier for Ernest after his appearance on Capitol Hill. In
1: 1979, he pled guilty to extortion, stemming from the clemency for cash scandal that we told you about earlier in this series. That's the one where aides to the Tennessee governor were accused of selling pardons. As far as we know, Ernest never told prosecutors that he'd been an informant for the FBI. And if he had, it might have helped him avoid the five months that he spent in prison. About a decade later, starting in the early 1990s, there was a surge of interest in his photography. A new civil rights museum had opened in Memphis, located in the former Lorraine Motel. It featured at least 17 of his photographs. Soon, there were books devoted to his work and documentaries about his life.
5: Ernest Withers
2: grew up in segregated Memphis, and he proudly proclaims his Manansas roots.
1: In his final years, Ernest was celebrated as a civil rights hero and recognized as one of the most important photographers of the 20th century. When he died in 2007, he carried his secret with him to the grave. Betty Lawrence says her father wrote in his diary every day until he died in 1990. He, too, carried the secret of his relationship with Ernest Withers to his grave. But he left a long paper trail. In his memos and in his diary, you can see a carefully crafted legacy. Bill Lawrence, the dedicated FBI agent, avenger of communism, defender of the nation. But what, in the end, was he defending the nation from? Was there actually any real threat beyond ideas and political beliefs that challenged the status quo? Reading his memos, his diary, and knowing what we know now, what you see is just how distorted the FBI's view was, how often the danger that it saw was just made up to justify its actions. Ernest's secret was safe, but the FBI's had been exposed to the world, and there were consequences. Congress passed reforms to rein in domestic surveillance— If intelligence agencies wanted to spy on Americans in America, they would need to show that there was some real criminal activity going on, and they'd need a warrant from a special court. Without that warrant, they were committing a felony. The goal was to make it hard for government agents to target people just because of race or political beliefs.
3: Even in Memphis, new restrictions were put in place. Here's reporter Mark Pereskia there's a standing order from 1978 that the Memphis Police Department cannot engage in political intelligence gathering. They cannot monitor or keep files on activists who are engaging in lawful First Amendment rights to dissent. We know that none of these changes totally stopped the abuse.
1: And that following the September 11th attacks, Congress reversed many of these reforms and gave the intelligence agencies even broader authority to spy on Americans. And then... Twelve years later, Edward Snowden, a former contractor for the CIA, revealed that the National Security Agency was collecting the telephone records of tens of millions of Americans. Back in Memphis…
0: Developing tonight, a federal judge says the Memphis Police Department
1: cannot spy on people for political reasons. In recent years, the Memphis PD has been caught surveilling activists who take taken to the streets in response to police violence.
3: They're looking at Black Lives Matter activists and others and keeping files and information on them because they believe that they're potentially violent, which there's no probable cause of that. They just think that they might be because of things that they've done and the associations and some of its bias and some of it's based on, you know, a foundation that doesn't really hold up. But, you know, they're doing it again. I mean, the history is repeating itself. With all of the advances in technology,
1: it's a lot easier today than it was in Hoover's era to track people. Local police and federal agencies can and do monitor activists on social media. But the advances in technology also mean it's a lot easier to capture and broadcast social movements in real time. If law enforcement crosses the line at a protest, bystanders can post the cell phone video to social media in seconds. It can be on the national news that very evening. These days, It's hard to fathom being the only one in the room or in the crowd with a camera. The only one taking pictures. The only one recording history. I consider
3: Ernie Weathers a civil rights hero. Again, reporter Mark Pereskia. But he was complicated and his times were complicated. And what we see in this revelation is the warts that were never painted on the official portrait, which are helpful in understanding this period. And all this hurtful oppressive, intrusive work that the government was doing in spying on American citizens. For Mark, this has always been first and foremost a story of government overreach. But, you know, if you're going to tell a story like that, there is going to be some pain. There is. I mean, there's just no way of getting around it. And it's kind of painting a portrait as it really is and not just glossing it. You know, we all have shortcomings. We all have failures. And and this was his. I mean it real it was. Um, I just think that the larger story trumps the the pain and the you know, the inconvenience of, of it all.
2: find ourselves trying to help people to understand. Roz
1: Withers and I walk down Beale Street. It's the middle of the day, but music is pouring out from restaurants and bars. When
2: you look at the magnitude and the content of what he had...
1: She's taking me to the archives, where most of her father's work now lives, just about a block up the street from the Withers Museum.
2: Archive of Ernest Withers, and I'd like for you to get a pencil out, and I want you to count everything you see. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You counting all that.
1: I'm staring at row after row of tall metal cabinets.
2: Okay, these are his original cabinets.
1: Oh, wow. So what material, what is this made of? These
2: were, uh, oh, this is kind of like a tin. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful stuff. That's why we went. It's gorgeous. It's uh, yes, in yes. gold <laughs> with these blue
1: letters. <laughs>
2: yeah, Inside the really a,
1: drawers are the original effect. negatives of this, photos this, that this, Ernest took. That from these, took. from these original masters, Roz is building a digital hand hand archive. archive. She spent more than four years on the project, and she's not done. Her goal is to make all of her father's photographs accessible to anyone, anywhere. But first, she had to organize
2: the work. Okay, so let me explain. These are the negatives, okay? And this is a typical envelope. And what a typical envelope looks like, what year is that? It's
1: 1959.
2: Envelope, what's inside? A negative. It's a negative, okay. And there's negatives throughout every envelope. The beautiful thing that my father did is that he put subject matter and date on most of his material. Mm. So what does that look like in terms of, Fill that one. Oh,
1: there's a ton in there. So is exactly. that a whole set
2: of negatives, but maybe? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Okay.
1: That's from Amy Church, Reverend Johnson, 1977.
2: Okay. Yeah. And so it's so, hyper-specific. Exactly. So this is here. We can go down here. Same thing. We can go down here. Same thing. Over here. Same thing. Over here.
1: Every drawer is a different category. Lifestyle, sports, music, politics. Civil rights was the first category that they preserved and digitized. It's a huge project. Beyond the cabinets, there are two closets filled with boxes and boxes of negatives. For Raz, her father's legacy is in every one of his photos. And preserving his work isn't just a labor of love. It's essential. Why do you think this process is so important?
2: It's our history. It's our history because we are told we didn't exist, or we're told that our history is not substantial because there's no record. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. We have record. We have our history. It's right here. And it should be in schools. It should be a part of the education process. That's why this is important.
1: And these photos, not just the civil rights or the sports, but the weddings, the funerals, the, you know, the family photos provide a visual history of
2: who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why this is important.
1: Later that night, I met up with some friends in Memphis for dinner, and we ended up discussing this project. They each wanted to know if I believed that Ernest had really been a prolific informant, and if so, how that should complicate their view of his legacy. One thing is clear, I told them. Ernest had definitely been giving information to the FBI. But there's a caveat. It's hard to superimpose the values and the ethics of today on the realities that would have been facing him, a black man in the South in the 1960s. As for his legacy and that of his work, I'll give Ernest the highest compliment a journalist can receive. His work speaks for itself. Before I left Memphis, I gave Roz Withers my address and my credit card number. I had purchased six prints of Ernest's photos, all of which now hang in my house. There was the photo of the black girls preparing to desegregate the schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the one of Medgar Evers' wife and children crying at his funeral. I bought a photo of the activist Dick Gregory tying his boots to join the March Against Fear in support of James Meredith, and one of Martin Luther King sitting at the front of the first desegregated bus in Montgomery. Another shows reporters riding along the parade route on the anniversary of King's assassination. And then, of course, I bought that photo, Ernest's most enduring work, in which the striking sanitation workers fan out across the street in Memphis. They hold up their signs, each of them declaring, I am a man. This season of Unfinished is a co-production of Stitcher and Scripps. Our senior producer is Roy Hurst. The editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our show is written by Ellen Weiss. Executive producers are Camille Stanley and Ellen Weiss. Our music is composed by Edward Tex Miller. Mixing is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to reporter and author Mark Peresquia for sharing documents, sources, and his years of work on this story. Mark is the author of the book A Spy in Canaan, how the FBI used a famous photographer to infiltrate the civil rights movement. He is currently the director of the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis. Thanks also to the WGBH archives. We had production help from McKenna Smith and Suzanne Reber. Our FBI documents were brought to life by actor Corey Landis. Fact-checking was by Kelvin Bias. Stitcher's vice president of content is Peter Clowney. If you like the show, and believe in this kind of storytelling. Please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It'll help more people discover Unfinished. I'm Wesley Lowry. Thanks for listening.